You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome today to the Mayo Clinic series, Primary Care Child Mental Health. This is your host, Dr. Peter Jensen, and I am delighted to be joined today by one of my dear friends and colleagues, longstanding work together going back uh, over a decade in the area of ADHD, Dr. Laurel Leslie, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Tufts in Boston. Laurel, welcome. Thanks very much, Peter. I'm delighted to be with you today. You know, when I go back and I look at kind of the pediatric literature, who's been doing what? And I can I go back, you know, eight, ten years, and I see that name, Laurel Leslie, popping up about some of those first projects that you did, in, I know, in San Diego, where you began to say, look, how do we help primary care providers actually do this in the real world. It's one thing to do research, but it's another thing to do it in the real world. Are you still interested in that area? Are you still trying to tackle the real world, or are you, uh, have you become a kind of a, a pointy-head academic lately? <laughs> We're still trying to tackle how to do this in the real world. So um, we had started working right after the American Academy of Pediatrics had published um, both diagnosis and treatment guidelines in 2001, and I was with... Uh, Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego at the time. We were very interested in how do, we, how do we take these guidelines and actually make them implementable. And we ran a series of uh, focus groups with uh, different doctors in the community, some in private practices affiliated with Rady Children's, some in community health centers. And then San Diego is also where uh, Balboa Naval Hospital sits um, and some with some uh, clinicians in the uh, working with the naval population and tried to look at what were the issues they saw in terms of implementing those guidelines and how we could potentially address them in more of a systematic fashion. Well, you know, this whole issue of we see guidelines come out and then uh, there's this expectation that the guideline almost is supposed to help someone take this set of principles and procedures and totally put them into place. And I guess you're here to say slow down. Is it it's not quite that easy? Or what would you, what would you tell somebody who says, "All right, we're going to put evidence-based practices into our clinical setting"? Well, I think one thing we found, um, both working with the doctors and, and nurses and nurse practitioners in San Diego, and then I also had the opportunity to work with the National Initiative for Children's Healthcare Quality. We took 40 offices across the country through a year-long process of trying to implement the guidelines. And I would say there's lessons learned across all of those. Um, the first was that one of the principles whenever you're working collaboratively of cross-practices is to share seamlessly and to steal shamelessly. And I think uh, that was something we all learned, is really the opportunity to learn from each other about some of the ways you operationalize the guidelines and get them into place. Uh, is really critical. And then the corollary to that was what works in one office may not work in, the, uh, in another office, but you look at what the core principles are behind it and you can figure that out. Uh, so I'll give an example. The guidelines uh, call for getting uh, a copy of a rating scale, such as the Vanderbilt, which is the one that's been recognized and recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, from schools prior to doing an evaluation. 
And we had one community in North Carolina that was a small rural community where they were able to get the school district to agree that before the teachers um, made any recommendations to see your pediatrician about the possibility of ADHD, they would have completed the Vanderbilt rating scale. That's harder to do in a more urban area, but that's an example of some of the creativity I thought communities were demonstrating in terms of how to make the guidelines work. What do you find from the perspective of the primary care pediatrician or family practitioner? What are the big obstacles they're going to face if they're saying, all right, yeah, we have to do this, but like, where, where would you point them at the very beginning saying, all right, now, get ready. This is what this is going to mean for your practice. I think, Peter, one of the interesting things to put this in the context of is uh, just to uh, let the listeners know there has been a new set of guidelines that came out in 2011 that updated the 2000 and 2001 guidelines. And um, there are opportunities to partner with others and get support around this. So, for example, uh, if you're going for um, recertification for maintenance of, of your certification to practice, and you're a physician, family practice, internal medicine, pediatrics, you can get credit for quality improvement projects, and doing something around this with quality improvement would be a mechanism for gaining some support around this from others who are looking to uh, implement these guidelines. There's a number of practices that are also seeking NCQA recognition as a patient-centered medical home, and some of the core principles that fit with implementing these guidelines, such as integration of behavioral services into primary care, shared decision-making, um, which is a key part of the patient-centered medical home, and uh, charting your populations that are at risk for certain disorders. All of those key principles behind PCMH, uh, NCQA recognition, directly align with ADHD. So there are, there are groups across this country that are looking to help people as they're implementing these types of changes. I think the big challenges are figuring out how you're going to organize your office to manage patients that are coming in uh, for an evaluation of ADHD and then how you'll manage them post-diagnosis. So the guidelines again call for collecting a fair amount of information and part of that is because there's a lot of conditions that can either coexist with ADHD or mimic ADHD. So depression in kids can present with irritability in some inattention, as can anxiety. You can have a child who's um, on medications that are causing hyperactivity. You can have a child that's experienced um, abuse or neglect have symptoms of hyperactivity or impulsivity. So the importance of doing a really thorough history is critical. And then again, as we've mentioned, getting a, a DSM-4 or now to be DSM-5 based rating scale is also uh, heavily recommended in the guidelines. You know, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, uh, Laurel, of, a, of an experience I've had here at Mayo Clinic where we, we actually did a collaboration across pediatrics, family medicine, and child psychiatry where we said, look, let's align everybody. We're going to use the same tools uh, so we can refer back and forth and assist each other. And it took us about a year and a half to two years just to kind of get everyone up to speed with that and then get it into the medical record. And then... You know, just I'm thinking about your outline of pre-diagnosis, post-diagnosis, and management. Then it took us another, oh, almost a year to get the electronic records so that we get automatic 
Vanderbilt's on follow-up assessments. So it was, it was interesting. Each of those was a little, quite a different step. And I think that's what we found, Peter, when we were working with the 40 practices with NICHQ, is it, it was very helpful to kind of focus on one area when you were getting started. So clarify how you're going to do diagnosis, how you're going to get the information you need to make a diagnosis, what types of information parents might need to be hearing when you're discussing the diagnosis with them, uh, how you're going to do shared decision-making with them around different types of treatment options. So focusing in that area seemed to be, as you're saying, take several months, up to a year, to figure out and work out some of the kinks. And then the use of an EMR to automate some of this and also help you to identify and track patients is really helpful for managing uh, this subpopulation of pediatric patients that one might be taking care of. And I think the third thing we learned is partnering with, as you're saying, with child psychiatry or mental health providers or schools, there's a series of efforts you could take on to really try to link with the other types of providers who would also be addressing some of the needs of these children. We're talking today with Professor Laurel Leslie. Uh, Laurel is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Tufts University, and she is kind of walking us through some of the challenges, but I think also the benefits of organizing one's practice so you can more systematically take on and manage and expertly handle conditions such as ADHD. And um, it's my understanding that within the last year or two, the American Board of Pediatrics has also said, yeah, depression now needs to be part of our purview as well. I know this is off the topic of ADHD, but it does get right back into how one organizes one's practice. Can you fill us in there? Right. So there's a number of mental health conditions that both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Board of Pediatrics have really tried to highlight. Uh, depression is another one of them, particularly adolescent depression. Again, I think one of our major roles as primary care clinicians is being attuned to what symptoms might suggest certain disorders uh, and then knowing how to either conduct an evaluation yourself or who the professionals are you need to be referring to. And then how you support families I really see the primary care clinician as having a major role in supporting families as they're working with other professionals to meet the needs of their child with a chronic mental health condition. You know, that seems to be so important uh, because I, I know, not as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, you know, I've seen the studies that suggest, golly, if a family could pick where they would go to have something like ADHD or depression managed, it's not to see me, the shrink. It's to see their primary care doctor. And so this sure seems to be, all the stars seem to be coming together saying, look, how do we do it well with family support and shared decision-making and primary care medical home and giving the primary care docs these tools so they can do what really families are asking for? I think some of it for me, too, this is moving more into follow-up on a child with ADHD, but there are natural time frames during the year that to me seem to be important touch points to review things with families. Uh, one of the things families almost always say is when they start the, the fall, even if in they're, in, they're in the same school, it's almost like totally starting all over again. Even if they have some supports in place, like a 504 plan, which would have allowed accommodations in the regular classroom, 
or an IEP where a child would be getting additional services. So I always feel that it's good to be touching base early in August or early when school goes back about what parameters are put in place to help that child and the teachers that that child might be having adjust to each other so we don't have an incredibly long period of struggling to get the services that a child might need in place. I think October, November is another one of those touch points that's usually after parent-teacher conferences. Uh, Again, February, March ends up being a good time. That's a great time to start talking with families about what they're going to do during the summer, be that summer school or planning for camps or other activities that are going to uh, be helpful for that child to participate in, uh, or ones that might be able to manage a child's particular mental health conditions. Um, And then I usually touch base again, bring back the conversation again in June, how are we doing looking forward to the summer? Are we staying on medications, if they're on medications for ADHD or not? Sometimes the summer can be a good time to try off of other medications that you might be utilizing for depression or anxiety. So there are, seem to me to be natural touch points that can be really important to incorporate into your visits as a primary care clinician. You know, what you're, what you're saying kind of makes me think uh, what you said earlier about an EMR. I mean, that can be very helpful if we have, like, standardized kind of touch points, reminders and flags for, for the doc and the families so that we can, you know, provide this kind of state-of-the-art care. Can this really be done in primary care? I mean, can you get paid for it? Isn't this way too complicated? Isn't primary care really set up to manage ear infections and well baby checks? Is this stuff really ever going to fit? I think what we're all aware of is that it has to fit in because really the disorders, as you're saying, that families are coming to us with help for tend to be developmental and behavioral types of issues as well as management of other chronic disorders. So in, in many ways, the the primary care uh, medical home concept is where we need to be heading, and we need to be pushing for reimbursement strategies to track behind that. Thank you to our guest, uh, Professor Laura Leslie. Continue to join us on ReachMD, where you can download other podcasts from our series on the Mayo Clinic Update and Primary Care Child Mental Health, www.reachmd.com. This is your host, Dr. Peter Jensen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.